Hello and welcome to the Weeding Muslims podcast. I'm your host, Abdullah Majid, a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. The Weeding Muslims project is a Connaught Global Challenge project at the Islamic Studies Institute that re-examines the place of textuality in the study of Islam and Muslim societies. The ethnographic hub of this project looks at how texts come to be intertwined in the extraordinary lives of Muslims. Today, I'm glad to be speaking with Professor Noah Salomon to discuss his brilliant book, For Love of the Prophet, an Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State. Professor Noah Salomon is the Irfan and Noreen Galaria Research Chair and Associate Professor in Islamic Studies at the University of Virginia. His love of the Prophet, For the Prophet, is grounded in long-term ethnographic fieldwork in Sudan and gives a nuanced examination of the emergence of the Islamic State and a particular Muslim subjectivity in Sudan with the rise of the Inqad regime in 1989, the first Islamic state in the Arabic speaking world. In this account, Professor Noah Salomon pushes against many anthropological approaches to the state, asking us instead to approach the state not merely as an object of resistance, but rather as a productive and maybe even desired site of belonging. I'm extremely excited to talk more about this with Professor Noah, and I welcome him to this podcast, and it's great to have you with us, Noah. Thanks so much, Abdullah. It's such an honor to be here with you. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Noah. I'm wondering if we can begin this conversation from a general and possibly broad question that kind of organizes this project. And that is, what does textuality mean for you as an anthropologist, particularly as an anthropologist who is interested in the state? And how do you understand and trouble the relationship between texts and Islamic tradition and Islamic textuality? Thanks so much. Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about this as I've been going through uh, the website for the project and thinking about the really exciting work that you guys are doing over there. Texts, texts are, are really, central to the work I, I did in the book that you just mentioned in For Love of the Prophet. Um, but I would say that they're central less as an object of study, though they are that too, um, but more as, I guess, what I would call a methodology. Uh, let, let me explain wh what I mean uh, by that. There's a concept that I, I, I could have sworn is, uh, is from Brinkley Messick, but it, it may actually be apocryphal because in my head, I, I read about it somewhere, but I've never been able to find it in the literature when I've gone back to look. It could be that I heard him lecture about it somewhere or, or perhaps I, I dreamt it. But anyhow, the concept that I attribute to him uh, um, is this concept of ethnographic reading. And at least what I what I understood of this of this idea of ethnographic reading, it, it's had really a profound effect on my own methodology. And what what I understand Messick to mean by this term is the practice of not merely integrating texts, the textual universe of of one's interlocutors as an anthropologist into one study as a serious matter, uh, something that I do think needs to happen. But but going going a step beyond that, actually reading these texts with one's interlocutors. So I, this this comes out of an understanding of these texts essential, I would say, intersubjectivity that they only really make sense within a universe in which they're read, and thus finding 
somebody for whom the texts were written is essential to the ethnographer, somebody like me, coming to an understanding of the world that these texts occupy. So this was really central for me and, um, and for Love of the Prophet, whether it be books that I was engaging in, in Salafi doctrines or Salafi religious criticism, advanced texts in, in Tasawwuf or, or Sufism, or, or the poetry, the Medea, um, that was really key to what I was trying to do um, in the book and, and from where I um, derived the title. So when I, when I tried to read any of these texts alone, I would say the meaning that I was able to derive was maybe 10% of what I was able to gather when I read these texts with a partner, really sitting in the same room with somebody and going through the text line by line. And, and I thought often of that distinction that several anthropologists of Islam have discussed between what's known as mutala and qira reading as a as a as an individual practice and recitation and that there's something about reading out loud brings these texts that gives these texts presence and i'll say i don't want to uh, go on at too much length but it, this this isn't this isn't something that's just part of my ethnographic practice but it's also something that is really deeply integrated into my teaching as well, you know, in all of my classes, reading out loud is a major part of what I do with students. And, you know, at first they, they look at me like I'm absolutely crazy, but at least I hope by the end of the course, they come to see the benefit of reading texts out loud and together, that there's something about not just the collective effort of interpretation, but the way in which giving the text a certain kind of voice gives them a, a, a presence in our conversation that's really powerful. And I, I do this also in teaching, so as to break down that line between the primary and secondary source texts. And this is something that's that's important to me, both in teaching and in, in research, that we read Islamic texts, if we want to use that term, both as an object of study and as a frame for studying, and that we read also anthropology of Islam as an object to be studied and as a potential frame. And Shazab Bashir is somebody uh, who's written on this topic in really productive ways for, for history. And, and of course, it's important in anthropology as well. So something about reading it out loud allows me to, um, to muddy those, those lines. But uh, back, back to ethnography, uh, you know, I, I think the question of text and anthropology is certainly one of sources, but perhaps what's more interesting and under theorized is, is the question of production, how we as anthropologists come to produce texts out of our, uh, out of the universe that we occupy in our participant observation and our various uh, encounters with, with, uh, with material that's, that's not initially textualized. Um, and that's something I wanna explore more as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's wonderful. And I mean, when you mentioned mutala and qara, I also think of acts of reading that are more engaging and that are more superficial in a sense. Mutala'a might seem as more superficial, but quick reading rather than qara'a, which is, can be thought of as a communal one where there is an auditory aspect to it. Right, right, right. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm packing that and I'm thinking of texts as a framework rather than uh, merely as an object of study. Uh, I want to take us to the kind of the introductory aspect of your work on Sudan. 
And mm -hmm. as many of our listeners are aware, Sudan was under the British colonial administration until around 1956. And you emphasize mm -hmm. that the colonial administration had seen the Islam practice then as a kind of a threat and aimed to reform it for the new state and mold the particular Muslim subjects that were more docile and easily governed if you want to think in those terminologies. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that and how texts came to be entangled with these British practices, these colonial practices. You know, you mentioned briefly importing scholars from Azhar to do the interpretations, what you call flexible interpretation, which I found a fascinating term, and the establishment of particular institutions, you know, that come up to reform or produce a new reformed image of Islam. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't looking for it, but what jumped off the page when I did the archival research that led to the chapter that you're talking about on the um, that begins the book on the British uh, attempt to reform Islam in the early years of their colonial project, what really jumped off the page at me was the way in which um, what they understood, at least, um, to be the kind of uh, detextualized formations of Islam ritual in particular, um, felt threatening to them in a way that it couldn't be uh, pinned down by, by the forms of governance that they were trying to establish. And so you find these descriptions of the Sufi Zikr, for example, in which, you know, it's unpredictability is what is, what is focused on by the colonial administrator. And then, you know, very quickly, the same administrators are the ones who are trying to establish colleges of law in Sudan. Uh, Gordon College, the first uh, uh, Western style university that the British established, colleges of law, you know, scholars who are focusing on um, varieties of the textual tradition that they assume don't exist in Sudan or don't exist in a way that's legible to them. And of course, of course, that's that's a mistake. That's a misinterpretation. There's all kinds of um, uh, reading practices and textual um, engagement that are going on in Sudan, you know, even within the very Sufi movements that they seem to see as, you know, uh, some kind of uh, uh, practice that might even predate Islam and uh, with the uh, no uh, rhyme or reason to it. These are deeply textual communities, but the British don't see it as such and thus um, try to establish a mode of engaging texts, a mode of scholarship that is much more legible to them and governable by them. Um, and so it becomes the major part of their practice in the early years of their rule to establish a kind of textual polity um, in which Islam plays a key, a key role. The British split Sudan into two zones, one that's open to proselytization, which is Southern Sudan, and one that will, you know, as they put it, respect Islam, but as they try to do reform Islam into something they can uh, govern in their, their model of the uh, colonial state that they're trying to put forward. And so you see um, both uh, textual practices and spatial geographical, geographic practices as they kind of try to move 
religious leaders from these uh, the farther reaches of Sudan, these ungovernable sites to the capital and then set up the capital as a place where, um, which can be a center of Islamic scholarship in a way that it, 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 uh, it wasn't at the time um, where you have all these, uh, you know, centers of learning actually that are spread out across Sudan at, at, at attempt to centralize it as well. So I hope that answers uh, your question. Yeah, no, definitely. That's fascinating. Um, so I want to return to the point that I mentioned about, you know, uh, text as an ethnographic practice. And I remember reading in the acknowledgments, you bringing up that notion through Messick, the kind of ethnographic reading, right? In which, you know, reading becomes an act in which reading circles can be seen as one of these ethnographic practices that come to read, to, you know, to uh, order how we think of the questions we're trying to raise. So in general, texts appear and do many things in your work. They appear as an archive or a repository of knowledge, and they appear as a tool for the state to inoculate and inculcate and produce particular imagined citizenry. And they also appear in mediated forms, as we see in the poetry of Madih and the sermons through the radio station, uh, Kothar, that you discuss in great So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about how texts emerge for you in particular in this project, and what does it mean for you to engage with them ethnographically in light of reflecting of the kind of ethnographic reading that you were thinking around missing, which I also find to be a kind of a very political engagement with texts. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. So I, I think there's there's two questions in there, if I understood. One, one is thinking about kind of the, the place of texts in the uh, in the governance project of the Islamic State that was my ethnographic president um, in, in distinction to the colonial uh, project that I discussed at the beginning of the book and then how it relates to these practices of ethnographic reading. Do I, do I have you right? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. You know, the vanguards of the, the revolution of national salvation, what the uh, Islamists uh, called their movement in uh, and Sudan Saurat um, these, these were intellectuals at, at, at their heart, people who produced texts, um, you know, from Hassan al-Tarabi, the, you know, uh, theorist or mastermind behind the Islamist project himself to many, many uh, less well-known figures who started um, think tanks, which at one point in my research really um, became quite central to what I was doing, these places. Um, there was one called um, uh, the Epistemological Enlightenment Center, Marquez of Tanwir Marafi. Um, and there were there were many, many uh, others with similarly um, sort mm -hmm. of um, grandiose names. And there's something fascinating about these, these think tanks and about the texts um, they uh, produced. And, and, you know, I accumulated a really, big uh, library of these, every, every time I would go visit them, I, I felt like there was a, a whole pile of uh, new texts that had come mm -hmm. out of these institutions. And my, my family was often annoyed with me because every time we would travel back from Sudan, I would um, monopolize all the luggage <laughs> allowance with these, with these books that, um, uh, you know, uh, my family wasn't sure I would actually ever read, and I, mm -hmm. you know, I probably only read a small portion, <laughs> but I, but I took them with me. And uh, more more seriously, um, there there's something really fascinating about this practice of of textual production that seemed really central to the intellectual life of 
of regime sympathizers um, or those who are, you know, if not regime sympathizers, people who are attached to the idea of the Islamic State. But there was there was also something that was deeply alienating about them as well as academic texts are here in North America. Um, so I, I guess this is a long way of saying I found them far more interesting as analytical frames in the end than as primary sources. Um, um, you know, Islamist texts, I, I feel like, are, are mostly discussed uh, in the English language academic literature as primary sources. But it was clear to me as an anthropologist, um, you know, that um, I'm not sure these were texts that were being read beyond this uh, small circle of people who were writing them. And if that was the case, these texts did have a kind of limited purchase of living objects to be analyzed by an ethnographer. But what they what they did and why they remained important for me is they is is they were um, they were discussing, you know, th these were the texts that were really theorizing the Islamic State most fully and provided not only a background to what I'm interested in, which is the uptake of the Islamic State, but they also um, they also uh, provided for me a useful interlocutor because they had spent so much time uh, thinking through what the Islamic State meant and could be and could do. So I found myself in conversation with them in a very different way to other sorts of texts that I felt had more of a significant uptake among my my interlocutors. And and I come to argue in the book that Sufism ends up doing a lot of the work of sedimenting the features of the Islamic state that the Islamists say they, they want. Um, these, you know, uh, high level intellectuals who might not have uh, so much popular purchase. And, and these were, you know, the idea of establishing a certain set of moral values and uh, among society and political closeness to the, the path of the, of the prophet, for example. And here, as you said, a major source for me is poetry, particularly the Medea tradition. And I, I take up this one figure in particular in the book, uh, Abdurrahim al-Burai, um, a Kordofani sheikh who dies in 2005. And he is really a, um, you know, extremely prodigious producer of Medea poetry that circulates, you know, by means of cassettes and later MP3s, but also a, a, a lot of that poetry is frozen into these uh, do lens um, these collections uh, by his followers and footnoted and given context and introduction and, and whatnot. And, and these texts were really central to me as a scholar trying to conceptualize how the poems functioned both as types of social criticism, so as an intervention of Islamic uh, public criticism in poetic meter, as much as they were religious objects. Um, and you know, to to your second question, it was only really possible by seeing these texts in context, both watching them be read and recited in the context of 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 ritual life or life within the um, within the uh, what's called the Masid incident, the the, the mm -hmm. Sufi uh, center, and also you know doing the kind of um, partnership. Uh, reading these poems once I had the, the textual version of the poem in the Diwan, actually sitting and reading them with somebody and seeing that, you know, yes, there were footnotes in the Diwans, but in fact, each line of the poem needed 
100 footnotes because there was so much you know as poetry often is there was such layers to what was being spoken there whether it was references to islamic legal texts very, very you know uh, oblique to me at least uh, references to um islamic legal texts um uh, references to uh, biographies of saints and all kinds of things that were uh, baked into the poetry that that I could only really be unpacked when I was in conversation with people about them. And also the, you know, this reading practice as well, it's not only a means of unpacking the text, but, you know, it would also spark depending on who I was reading them with, you know, reflections on the mm -hmm. role of these poems, on the role of their authors within the within the society in which they circulated. What do they mean? What did they do? How do people criticize them? You know, I mean, uh, one person I read text with a lot, uh, particularly these poems, I'm just remembering back, was himself a sort of had an ambivalent uh, relationship to Sufism. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we spent, um, you know, we'd sit together for an hour and maybe uh, half of it would be spent on the text itself and half of it would be these conversations that emerged around the text, which ended up being really central to me for understanding not just the text, but the, but the world um, from which they arose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's fascinating, and I'm glad you bring up the the you know the the experience of reading and with with your interlocutors, because what is interesting to me as well is that in, in reading the book, texts don't always emerge as the only critical or necessary mediator, let's say, for knowledge, uh, but rather like when I'm thinking of, uh, for example, the story of Faris, whom you share his story about drinking alcohol and how he comes to rationalize with that. The Quran is, and the Sunnah right. are somewhat foreclosed. It's like a kind of impossibility, as you hint in the beginning, where they rather recognize like the limitations of readings. And that's reversed to what you frame as obedience to the Sheikh, other forms of knowledge that emerge for Faris and others like him. You know, and despite, ironically, him returning to the story of Khadr and Moses to justify that obedience, which is a Quranic story. So we see that mm -hmm. impossibility also with the debate over secret knowledge that you talk about between Sufis and reformists and so on and so forth. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, there is this play, right? And I, I think that's that to me was what was really important, maybe sort of one of the first um, engagements I had, because I didn't go to Sudan uh, seeking to study Sufism. In fact, you mm -hmm. know, I, 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 I really, didn't think it would be real. I, you know, I went to Sudan to study Islamism and I thought Sufism couldn't be farther from it. That was kind of my uh, right. bias about it. And and I came to realize uh, that, that that wasn't the case at all. And, you know, um, I think one of the first uh, preconceptions that I had that was burst by my time actually hanging out with these Sufi interlocutors who had this uh, complicated relationship with uh, with the Islamic State and with the Islamist project, um, certainly in line with with different aspects of it, but also pushing back in productive ways against parts of it, um, was this relationship to text and knowledge. Uh, you know, the idea of the secret was a really productive frame for talking about uh, relations of authority between um, Sufi leaders and their followers and, and whatnot. But these were at the same time framed within a certain kind of textual universe that was that was inescapable, right? The story of Hidr and, and, and Musa, for example. You know, it was sort of 
contextual knowledge to justify going beyond the text, for example, right? There's this there's this constant play back and forth between these these realms of the non-discursive and the discursive that it wasn't these weren't a dichotomy with you know one group focusing on non-discursive or secret knowledge and the others uh, focusing on text but these were something that that played quite well together and and, and you know and I I think. I want to just stress that it's not something just for the Sufis. As you know, I spent a lot, a lot of time also with, with Salafi movements who, you know, they're the ones who claim to be, you know, solely based on on, on evidence. I, I, I say that uh, they even refer to themselves as the people who say, what's your evidence? And that's always thought to be textual evidence. But there's a whole world of, of non-discursive knowledges that they're engaging as well that I think are in commentarial knowledge as well. Like, you know, I mean, um, parallel to the Sufi poetry, I I, I, I did a lot of, uh, this wasn't uh, individ with individual partners. I went to a lot of lesson circles uh, run by Sadafis and it was, I didn't end up writing about it much in the book, but for example, I spent many months in a, a Sira lesson circle and it was always really fascinating to me that we would often, you know, the lesson was uh, uh, between the uh, two uh, nighttime prayers and, you know, over an hour long. And uh, we would often only read a paragraph of it. And it was this whole sort of commentarial universe and mm. way in which the uh, story being told uh, from the, the episode, from the life of the prophet, figured in the contemporary Sudanese politics or social life, et cetera. That was far more the the subject of, of, of analysis, whereas the text was kind of a jumping off point. And I think the same thing um, in a lot of these Sufi practices as well, the text serves as this kind of jumping off point to a, a much more complex intertextual and intersubjective universe that combines both discursive and non-discursive knowledges. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's super interesting. Um, and, and this somewhat ties also to the, you know, the point about interpretation and translation. Uh, because a common set of practices that emerge throughout, you know, your book and play a critical role in the production of the Islamic States project is acts of interpretation and translation, you know, in a sense, acts associated with reading. And so we see the reinterpretation of particular Islamic texts by the Ministry of Higher Education to produce a new curricula, part of the Tasail project, uh, what mm -hmm. you interestingly call fundamentalization. We also see it with mm -hmm. the British flexible interpretation. Uh, and mm -hmm. translation of texts into practice to govern. And also in your own writing, which is a, which to me is a product of translation and you know to a large extent. So I'm wondering if you can reflect on that, the role of interpretation and translation. Absolutely. I mean, um, be, before I, and you said it better than, than I could, I think, you know, before I say anything, I, I wanna point out your own teacher, uh, Professor Nada Mumtaz, has a wonderful mm -hmm. recent uh, Imminent Frame article on uh, the politics and practices of literary, historical, and conceptual translation that really addresses these issues so thoroughly and, and thoughtfully. I really um, mm -hmm. think that article is so important and hope uh, your listeners uh, check it out if they haven't already. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, this gets to the this gets perhaps to what I was pointing to before, which is, you know, again, in some ways, what's more 
interesting to me and under theorize and i'm not sure i have a, a polished answer for you about the question of the anthropology of islam and textuality is not texas sources i mean i think any anthropologist worth uh her or his weight is engaging with the textual universe of their interlocutors where you know we're hopefully beyond the days when anthropologists thought that you know orality was their only uh mode of engagement uh, so that to me sort of is is settled and goes without saying mm -hmm. at this point in time that, that you know um, people are swimming in a sea of texts and as an anthropologist you need to also swim alongside them. Um, but I think what's much more interesting and under theorized is the way in which we as anthropologists produce texts um, out of the universe and, and that, that we're in. And I don't just mean like writing our books. Um, you know, for me, um, I feel that reproducing it makes it drives like, you know, the people who, uh, who the, ed the editors, the editor is a little crazy. One, one thing I really find important is to reproduce you know, often very lengthy paragraphs of material that I might have encountered orally in sermons or or in interviews, et cetera, and to basically render them as as texts. And you know, there's something artificial here, of course, and that the form is not incidental. And I've changed the form so as they integrate the words um, into into an analysis. But but I do find the method useful um, and, and really insist on it um, because I think it's only by giving the reader the actual material up front that some of these preconceptions that you know. I think good anthropology of Islam is trying to unsettle can become unstuck. I, th I think it's 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 one thing it's one thing for me to say our analytical models don't work uh, for, for these reasons, but it's another thing to present readers with something that doesn't fit the molds that they have in their repertoire and say, okay, now you deal with this. You you deal with this uh, this uh, text that doesn't fit the models that we've been given and and to me that's that's kind of the promise of of making texts as as anthropologists that they can have the power to do that in a way that you know uh, the average reader might not have access to that material otherwise um just simply you know obviously you're doing translation and putting arabic into english uh, at least you know nine percent of those paragraphs I'm talking about I, I do you know use a lot of technical terms but in another way it's trying to sort of you know sit with the digressions right oral material has digressions and ellipses ellipses is the, I don't know the plural is of ellipsis but um mm -hmm. you know places that are broken off in a way that texts edited texts don't and what does it mean to kind of give your reader the the body of that material and all its complexity to not simply, you know, give a short quote, but to just throw out half a page of something that you heard and have the reader think about what is this, you know, quote unquote digression that actually, in fact, might be the important part of what's being said here to really um, 
present the reader with this material. I think that's the promise of the work we do of creating text. But again, um, a lot more thought needs to be done um, on this topic. And um, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I think, you know, thinking of the, the production of texts uh, as, you know, as a set of practices, as a mechanism, as a strategy, can also take us to think of text in the forms that you talk about, in the forms of Madiham poetry, in the form of street posters, in the form of digital, you know, manners, let's say. And I think that's where also the idea of thinking of text as production rather than as an object uh, comes to play. Um, I also want you know, to maybe at the end of this reflect on more recently on the work you have been doing on transnational and transregional projects on the production of difference. So I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about that and how does it build on your past projects? Yeah, thanks so much. So um, as you said, I have this um, new project um, I've been working on over the past couple of years. Um, that sits between three uh, field sites, Beirut, uh, Muscat, and Khartoum. And, and these are three cities that um, are not often put together on the same page. And in some sense, that's really the point for me. I'm trying to use each site as a way of exploring the question of the performance, production, management of religious, specifically inter-Islamic difference, particularly at moments of deep social and political change and in, in, in Sudan and Lebanon very immediately I'm looking at the revolutionary context of 2018-2019 and over the long durée in Oman as a kind of useful counter case or control. In Sudan um, we're in the context of an untangling from the Islamic State that occurs following the revolution of 2018 and 2019, and then a reassessment of what the role of public uh, Islam might be after this traumatic experience with Islam being used as a tool for a deeply unjust governing system. Um, in Lebanon, uh, also following a revolution uh, in 2019, I'm thinking about the challenge to sectarianism that emerges very vocally in that revolution and the debates within Shi'i communities over questions of identity, over questions of commitments to international struggle, Mukawama as part of a moral community over and against the revolution, Athaura as citizens of a nation state, and where those two ideals intersect and clash. And then finally, in Oman, I'm thinking about Ibadism as a mark of, of Islamic difference, neither Shi'i nor Sunni in its particular form, and, and present-day Sultanic Oman as a kind of figure of tolerance that also I think, and it's often uh, forgotten, emerges out of a post-revolutionary context that suppressed one of the supporters of the Imamate and the Jabal Akhtar war and the other of the communist revolution and, and so far. So again, I'm thinking of these three post-revolutionary contexts at really different stages and how Islam so deeply tied to the state throughout history and so deeply tied to the state in my first book asserts itself as a principle of difference when it's forced to think through an itinerary either in spite of the state or in a new formation uh, of it. So um, yeah, so you know, here, here again, texts are figuring in, in, in multiple levels, but I'm also, um, I'm also trying to think about the power actually of, of literature as a way of helping me suture or tie together some of these um, three geographically disparate sites. And um, 
One book mm-hmm. I've been reading uh, recently is uh, Sanala Ibrahim's Warda. Um, that's been really helpful. Um, and maybe you know it, it tells the story of one one revolution, uh, revolutionary's uh, travels between um, Cairo, Beirut, and Muscat, and then Southern Oman as part of this revolutionary itinerary in the 1960s and 70s. It's kind of a mystery. Um, you know, painting a picture of a time when these two places, Lebanon and Oman, that are in 2021, so vastly different in some in some ways reverse images of one another. And that's why people, when they hear that I'm doing a project between these places, their eyebrows often raise. Mm-hmm. But how these places that are so different now could be thought of not so long ago as part of the same political paradigm of a revolutionary moment. And so I want to think of these places together, even if they've wandered quite far from one another. And I think really the kind of the imaginative world of literature opens up this possibility for me in a way that uh, other literatures haven't. So I'm, I'm trying to think through um, this as well and my new work. Fascinating. I look forward to reading more about that uh, as it comes to fruition. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Noah Salomon, for joining us today. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was me. a pleasure talking really with you. Thank it. you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Stay tuned. <laughs>